Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and this is another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast. And today, we're excited to have with us a national leader in transportation, Anne Graham, who is Chief Executive Officer of the National Transport Authority of Ireland. It's a great conversation. She tells me all about their existing services and, and her career, of course. And then we go into some of the plans for the future of basically electrifying the rail cars, 800 new electric buses, building an underground subway for the first time in Ireland, uh, how they do all their contracting, which is a little bit different than how things are done here in the United States. And then also, the big thing I got out of the, the conversation was the support from the federal government for their public transportation operating dollars. They stepped right up during the COVID crisis, the peak of it, and made sure that their subsidies met the demand and are continuing to do so, it looks like, in this new year, a real model of federal support and uh, recognition of the role of public transportation in a nation's economy. That's all on today's edition of Transit Unplugged. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort. And today we're excited to have with us as our guest, Anne Graham, who is CEO of the National Transport Authority in Ireland. Anne's calling in today. We're on Zoom from Dublin. Anne, thank you so much for joining us on Transit Unplugged. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. Delighted to let you know what's happening in Ireland. Yeah, very excited. I've got some of my best friends are Irish, so I'm sure they're <laughs> going to love to listen to this. I've got a good buddy named Fred McNeil, who, uh, who I'm sure will love to listen to the podcast. Well, the Irish are everywhere, so we've got friends everywhere in every country. That's right. Well, I guess first off, just like you and I were talking about before we came on the air, tell us a little bit about Ireland. I'm not sure that everyone in the U.S. or other places around the world understand that you're a separate country from the United Kingdom and all that stuff. Kind of walk us through the context. Yeah, so Ireland is it's quite a small island, but the western periphery of, of Europe. Um, and we're divided north and south. So I live in the Republic of Ireland and our capital will be Dublin. And the North of Ireland then is is connected to the UK, uh, which is our sister island beside us and have strong links naturally enough to the UK. But we work very closely with our Northern Ireland colleagues as well in terms of, of public transport. So just to give you a, a feel for the island, the Republic is about 30,000 square miles in size. Okay. So it's about the kind of size of South Carolina. That, the okay. state of South Carolina. That just okay. gives you an idea yeah. of what size we are. So we're a relatively small country, but but we Population. like to think big. Population, Population. Um, of the whole island is six and a half um, million and about five million in, in the Republic of Ireland. Okay. Oh, so yeah. the north part only has one and a half million people? Yeah. Yeah, oh, that's right. Okay. That's right. And so their they, capital is what in the north? Belfast. Right. Belfast. People, people hear about yeah. Dublin and Belfast over here a lot. Now, <laughs> yeah. what's your what's your favorite soccer team? Or you call it football, right? Do you all have a, a home team? Well, you see, there's teams in that play in, in Ireland, like so we don't kind of go and look towards the UK. Some people do. There's a lot of yeah. connection between them in, in terms of soccer. So my my husband's team is Bohemians, which play in North Dublin. So obviously okay. I have to follow what he follows. <laughs> so well, first off, tell us a little about yourself. How long have you been there at the system? Sure. You know, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I've been in the NTA for about 10 years and, and the organization is only in place for those 10 years. So I came okay. at the time that the organization was being set up. Before that, I worked for Dublin local authorities. So my background is a civil engineer. So I qualified as a civil engineer in the kind of mid 80s and worked as an engineer on the kind of drainage side of things, started in the dirty side of the business and then moved on to traffic engineering and then kind of moved into more the management side of the local authorities and then moved over, as I said, 10 years ago to to work in setting up the organization, the NTA, and I'm CEO now for the last six years. Okay. And what, what did you start as? I started as the director of corporate services. So I started um, really in the corporate space uh, to try and build the organization, staffing, funding, all that kind of building up connections with stakeholders. Then I moved in as director of the public transport services um, for four or five years just to kind of develop our public transport system. And then, as I said, I was CEO now for for six years. Okay. And tell us about the transit system itself, the scope of what kind of services that you offer there. Yeah. So we contract and we provide, we're responsible for the provision of subsidized public transport services. So that's where the state is paying a subsidy for the provision of services. And they would include uh, rail services. So the rail network uh, throughout the island, all our bus services um, and we have light rail services in in Dublin only. So so all those are are, are procured uh, by ourselves, and we're in contract with those operators. A lot of these services, um, bus services, and the rail, the heavy rail services, are provided by a state owned company. So. Um, still would provide the majority of the services in in Ireland. There are commercially operated services as well that we license. So their services and their bus services um, um, in the main or in in complete um, their bus services and they're operated without a state subsidy. So they represent about 10% of public transport journeys across the state. So we have a combination of fully licensed commercial services with no state subsidy. And then we step in and provide services where there's an an obligation, there's an economic need and a social need to provide services, but they're not uh, financially uh, sustainable. So, and we provide subsidy for those. We've also been working to introduce some competition into the subsidised market because when we started off it was fully provided by the state operators and so now we've been we've introduced some competition into that market so those are fully tendered on an open on the open market and we've now got around 10 to 15 percent of our bus services are provided by um, privately owned commercial companies um, under contract to ourselves. Like what would some of those names be that people might know of? Go ahead. They would be based in in the UK. So on our Lewis, our light rail services is operated by Transdev, also well-known operator throughout the world. So, and the light rail was always fully uh, competitively tendered. So from the time it was introduced, it was competitively tendered. So, And how about demand response? Demand response is primarily on our rural transport services and it started off our rural transport as a very much community-led transport provision. So it was local community groups getting together to seek funding to provide demand response service, primarily serving um, 
those communities, very isolated communities, particularly older people, and to bring them and connect them back into their local communities. So that's primarily where our demand responsive services started. So they've been operating for over 10 years now, and we just brought them into the whole public transport family. And so they form a very important part of our, our transport family. And we are trying to ensure that once they could link somebody that's living in a very isolated rural area into a local town and they can then transfer to another service, which brings them to a larger town or to a city. So that's where we call our rural transport services local link, because it's very important to connect sure. local people to their local centres. So. so tell me about ridership and that kind of stuff pre-COVID, now that we're in COVID. How has that impacted you, those kind of things? Yeah, so we have, we had in 2019 a very successful year. So we grew our public transport journeys by uh, 9%, which is quite incredible in one year. Yeah. Yeah. So now we did invest in additional services and that's what we're continuing to do is to identify where there are gaps in our services and to increase those services. But yeah, 9% growth was phenomenal. And it brought us up to around 290 million journeys per year, um, which was incredible. But naturally, the the impact of COVID has been quite very significant, as it has been across across the world. Um, so what we've seen by year end of 2020, are compared to 2019, we saw a reduction of 50% in our public transport journeys. But that was primarily it would have been, should have been worse, except that we had the first three periods of of good uh, services, good numbers, and um, back up at the numbers in 2019, and then it just fell off. A cliff in, in March. So reductions down to, we were operating a reduction of about 80 to 90% compared to the previous year. Um, one thing that we was introduced by, by our government in terms of following public health guidance was to insist on a two metre social distancing on our public transport services, on all our public transport services. So that meant that that reduced the capacity as well on our services quite significantly. And so in, in and around March, we were operating about 15% to 20% capacity per vehicle. That was the limit of what we could carry and we were allowed to carry. And since then, we've been obviously in the, the ebb and flow of this pandemic, we've been able to increase our, our capacity, but our public health guidance have have, oh, have put a constraint on our capacity right through the year. So we only ever reached a maximum of 50% capacity on each fleet when the level of the virus was at its lowest level. So that's kind of unusual. I don't think there's any other country we've come across where an actual capacity constraint was put on per fleet. But and we we did find at times that we were reaching that capacity. We found it difficult to actually carry people because when the virus levels were low in this across the summer and then when schools reopened and colleges and some people did return to their workplace, the numbers were beginning to rise again. And we we found that we were having uh, capacity constraints, but now, now we're in a very severe lockdown again, and our capacity is maxed out at twenty five percent. So we can't go over twenty five percent on our feet. So I take it then you probably have not cut the number of trips that you're offering. You're keeping it because you have less people you can fit on. Yeah, well, we've tried to maintain as much, and, and I have to, I suppose, call out the dedication of the operating staff, particularly yeah, the yeah. frontline drivers and the maintenance crews that kept the transport services going right through the pandemic. And we did in March reduce our services um, a small amount by about 15%, more for resilience, just so that we can ensure that we had spares and on fleet uh, in yeah. case it was going to be supplied 
supply issues. So we, we are going to do something similar at the moment again, is just reduce uh, our services just about 10 or 15%, even with the capacity constraint in order to kind of provide some kind of resilience before we get back up to, hopefully get back up to increased numbers when we get through this right. crisis. Now, how is your system funded? It's funded directly by the government. So the um, government? national government, yeah. Okay. So through our uh, Department of Transport. So normally we would recover about 70% of our costs through fares. So we get our subsidy cover about 30 to 35%. Okay. But last year, naturally enough, uh, because our fare revenue was so reduced, it was it was we needed a subsidy. Our fare revenue only covered about 40% of costs. So we needed a, an extra about 300 million euros for subsidy, additional subsidy to keep the service going. And obviously there was additional costs associated with additional cleaning and all that kind of right. thing as well. So yeah, that's what was was required last year. And we it looks like we'll probably need a similar amount this year as well. And, and what is your annual operating budget there? Across our operating budget is about 800 million euros, okay. about 900 million euros uh, on our service side. And then we have on our capital side, because obviously we invest in infrastructure as well. I think our overall budget, our turnover really would be about 1.8 billion euros uh, this year. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, uh, And you've been working, a lot of your staff and you have had to work from home, right? Yes, that's right. We've been working remotely, working at home since March um, with just very small number of staff just receiving the post. That's all we have yeah. in our office at the moment. Have you had much impact of the COVID pandemic on your staff, like drivers and mechanics and staff? Well, in the early part, in the first series, we we had a very minimal impact on our on staff, on operator staff, compared to other countries. Um, we managed, I think, to keep the absence level. So that wouldn't be necessarily direct COVID infection, those that might have to self-isolate for a period of time, down to about 1% of the total operators staff, frontline staff, which was quite, that was a really good achievement. Yeah. Definitely down to the the way the operators and drivers handled um, the, the early pandemic. In the recent days, because the community levels are a little bit higher, we're up around 5% absence on operator staff and no deaths or anything like that. It's That's just good. been just some infections. What employees so. do you have, just in general? Yeah, in our organisation, we've about 200 um, direct employees and about another 200 that support support staff that come in through contractors or consultants. Across the the operating staff, the direct frontline, about 11,000 um, wow. staff. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. That's so crew. And that's wonderful. You haven't had anybody pass away from this. No. I know that on the first round, I live in Maryland near Washington, D.C. I didn't really know anybody that had COVID the first time around. But this second time, it's like yeah. I know lots of people that have hit. So yeah. the second one is seem to come on strong here in the beginning yeah. of the year. Yeah. Let me ask you about your, so a little bit more about your structure, because a lot of the people yeah. that listen to our show are inside <laughs> transit. So they like all the inside story. So yes. do you report to a secretary of transportation or a minister or how does all that work? And yeah, so we, and, to a prime minister or what? Yeah, we even a board, obviously. So we, we initially, okay. obviously are managed by board. So we have a board of 12, 12 members. And how are they appointed? Um, they're appointed by the Minister for Transport. So okay. they're appointed by the, the, the Department of the Minister uh, of Transport. And there are some that are automatic appointees, like the Chief Executive of Dublin City Council. He okay. would be automatically a member of our board. So, and then, so we report to the Department of Transport so because right. our funding comes through them. So obviously we we have to report on how we spend our funds and different kind of policy. So the department set the policy we implement 
their policy. But we've got some statutory roles, like we've got to develop transport strategies for particularly for the greater Dublin area. Because originally we were going, we were perceived uh, or we were going to be created as a Dublin transport authority rather than a national one. So a lot of our statutory powers relate to um, actually uh, the greater Dublin area and providing the infrastructure and the services for the greater Dublin area. And then our powers were extended um, for the provision of services nationally. And, and we also regulate the, as I said, the commercial bus services, but we also regulate taxis as well, small public service oh. vehicles as well. So, okay. So we take all that kind of infrastructure. So we're obviously, as a state, we're, we're a non-commercial semi-state agency. So, we, we you know, we have to respond to um, the government as well. So it is committees of the doll, our government, that we would have to, um, if we're requested to give information, we obviously have to attend and um, yep. go to committee meetings and all that. So And they're done that. <laughs> <laughs> where, where I'm at in Maryland, our General Assembly starts today and all these right. faces, memories were popping up, me testifying before yeah. committees because they have to approve the budget. Does the city of Dublin provide any uh, financing or just on your board? No, they're just on our board. So okay. so we see we fund the uh, infrastructure and we fund the local authorities to provide uh, infrastructure like bus stop infrastructure or the cycling infrastructure. So a lot of work that we're doing particularly in this COVID world, is about changing people's mobility in this time or taking the opportunity to change people's mobility to more sustainable methods um, of transport. So we're investing quite a bit in our cycling infrastructure um, and it would be the local authorities would deliver that infrastructure for us, but we fund okay. it. But we would we would kind of have the strategies for it. We would kind of decide where the infrastructure should go. But we work very closely with um the Dublin local authorities very, very, very closely. Yeah, so. that's great. And how about how about what's next? I mean, I know you've got, even though we're in the middle of COVID, you've got lots yeah. happening. So lots going on. Yeah. yeah, lots going on. So there's a previous government produced a national development plan um, of the infrastructure development for the next 10 years. And for the first time in, in, in any national development plan in Ireland, we saw more money being set aside for the development of public transport versus the roads infrastructure. So in our previous earlier years, we invested as a country, we invested a lot in, in our motorway infrastructure, our roads infrastructure, which the bus system obviously benefits from and lots of people benefit from. But now there's much more focus on investment in sustainable transport. So about 8.6 billion euros was set aside for uh, sustainable transport infrastructure. So that we've got three big programs that form part of that. The first one is Metrolink, which is a metro, underground metro, about 19 kilometres of metro, which will connect Swords, which is a town in the north of Dublin city, um, to our airport and into the city centre. And at the moment, we've gone through quite significant amount of public consultation. It's been actually delivered by a sister agency, which is Transport Infrastructure Ireland, and they work on light rail infrastructure and motorway roads, national roads infrastructure. So again, we set the strategy. We're the funders and they'll do the the day to day kind of delivery of that with us overseeing it and obviously working very closely with us. So that at the moment is, and um, we're just completing the design. We're finalizing the 
business case which has to go to government because we have to present to government. They have to see that there is a business case for this. Get approval for us to then take it into the planning stage. So we have a statutory planning framework that we have to go through as well. And that's where things can sometimes get tricky, as you can imagine, because the public have a right to object to what we're planning to do. And we've this will go through an oral hearing and this process involved in that. And particularly when there's compulsory purchase of property, you have to go through this process in Ireland um, before you're in a position to do that. So, so that's a big, that will be considered a, meg, a mega project from Ireland's perspective anyway, and it'll be the first underground metro. Awesome. And then we've another um, programme to continue to electrify our rail line, our heavy rail system, our commuter rail system in Dublin. We call that the DART Plus programme, and DART is the name we give to our electric our current electric um, system, which is about 50 kilometres of electric railway line. And we want to extend that by another 100 kilometres of electric rail line. So it's really electrifying the existing line uh, so that it can take um, trains. The first kind of phase of that is actually purchase of fleet. So we we decided uh, with our partners, our Darren, who are our operator, will deliver this infrastructure as well to procure battery electric and electric fleet. So what we wanted to do was provide the capacity as early as possible in the programme without necessarily having the overhead lines to operate the electric fleet. So that's why we're going for battery electric in the initial phases so that we can actually uh, increase the the capacity of the system because we were definitely constrained in terms of the numbers of people that we the, that we could carry versus the demand. We hope to place an order, or Irish Rail hope to, pl- to place an order um, in the next in this quarter, or maybe the, certainly early 2021, for um, a significant amount of of rail fleet. Um, and then we'll move. They will move to to bring through the planning process again all the electrification and all the infrastructure. In infrastructure works the um, associated with the electrification, and then finally on the bus system because because of the size of of our country and even our cities and how dispersed our population is even within the city we don't have very dense city environments so it means the bus is the workhorse for for our public transport system and always will be even in dublin so uh, it'll still carry the, the the vast majority of our public transport journeys so we we decided to kind of develop a program called bus connects which is really about looking at every aspect of the bus system uh, and improving it. So we looked at the network. Is the network fit for purpose for the news for the city and the way the city's developed and the way people are changing in terms of their journeys? And we engaged actually uh, Jared Walker, who you, you may know, he came right. to work with us on our um, network and to just relook at our our, our network um, fresh. And the other key uh, part of the of the program is actually improving the bus priority on our city streets because at the moment the bus shares its journey uh, with car traffic for about 70% of its journey so naturally enough as the city gets congested the, the bus gets held up and the journey times aren't as efficient as they could be so we've undertaken a very significant public consultation on a series of interventions across all the radial routes into the city where we want to provide a full bus priority in each direction and a segregated cycle lane in each direction and as well as place for car as well and and walk and walking as well so given that in in Dublin our, our streets aren't 
that wide. This has meant that we are, for the first time, looking at compulsory purchasing property in order to provide for the bus system or the cycling system. And we've never really gone into that space before. So naturally enough, that's quite controversial because you're impacting on people's property. um, And also it's impacting on roadside trees and significant number of roadside trees could have been um, chopped. And so there's a lot of heat around that naturally enough, because but it's all about providing the balance, like what in the conversations that we had with the public, if you want an efficient bus system, this is what you have to do is provide that kind of priority. Um, What are you willing to trade for that? Um, And some of the local communities have been willing to trade a car lane um, in order to get the roadside trees and less impact on on property. So in, in our Next iterations that we just completed on public consultation, we've got more one-way streets now, one-way systems in order to kind of mitigate the impact on property and on roadside trees. But we still retain a very significant proportion of the bus priority. So that's what we're doing in Dublin. And then we're going to transfer that to our other cities then as well. So we've just started that. We'd be going for, again, because we're there's still compulsory purchase of property in that we have to go through the planning process again. So our three big projects are all going into the planning process this year. Right. Normally, it's, it's very typical of buses, like you have nothing for years and then they all come together at once. So so that's really where we are on the, the major infrastructure, as well as doing all the walking and cycling improvements yeah. right across the country as well. So we have a lot, lot going on. Dramatic improvements. <laughs> Did you... Did I also hear that you're you're going to do a lot more electric buses as well? Yes, yes. So part of the improvement on Bus Connects is actually to improve the fleet as well. And our Minister for Transport, our current Minister for Transport is a member of the Green Party. So naturally enough, there's been a huge focus on our transport emissions because that's our second highest emissions as a country. It comes from the transport area, carbon emissions. So there's a huge drive now for us to meet our targets uh, that have been set uh, by Europe for us to to reduce our our net uh, carbon emissions, so we've we've moved and um, we've just taken a delivery of a hybrid um, fleet, hybrid diesel fleet. They we use double deck buses a lot on our on our buses, so we're very similar to the UK. We use single decks just for where we got lower demand, yeah, but we tend to use double deck buses. So we initially moved into the hybrid space, so that the battery will be able to kind of do the journeys that we are demand of our bus system to right throughout the day. And we also kind of set a target for going into the fully electric double deck fleet that they would operate for the full day without an in-service charge. So that means that the battery power has to be quite significant. And I think we're only getting to the stage now, or we only feel that the market has moved to this to the space that we can actually go uh, and procure those. So we've just started the procurement now for up to 800 uh, double-deck fully electric uh, vehicles. So we'd expect to see those arriving on the street towards the end of 2022. We're excited about that. And we will also move into fully electric single-deck fleet as well. And um, I think we were also going to test some hydrogen fueled um, 
electric yeah. fleet as well. So we're taking on three buses, which we'll receive early this year as well, test them out and, and obviously see what's what's involved. But I think there's definitely a future for, for hydrogen as well in terms of fueling public transport. So, so we're in a bit of a test mode learning. We've obviously got to put a change our depot infrastructure now so that we have charging, um, overnight charging across all our depots. So quite a bit of work to do now to get that in place as well. <laughs> well you're going to be busier than ever this year. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's exciting to see the investment from the federal level yes. here in the US and a lot of places in Canada and others. Public transportation operating dollars have largely been a local, a state and local yeah. uh, responsibility. But I think federal yeah. governments around the world are realizing, like yours has, that we have to invest in what we want our future to look like. We yeah. can't just let things happen. We have no. to take intentional action and to, if we want a cleaner, better environment and better mobility for our people, I think you're you're setting an example for the rest of the world, Anne. Oh, I'm delighted to hear that. Delighted. <laughs> well, we're very excited about it. We we believe that it also makes financial sense and economic sense as well, because the cost of congestion, of car congestion, if it's let let you know increase year on year, is very significant. Like we estimated that if we did nothing that the cost just in Dublin will be 2 billion euros per year of, of congestion. Wasted productivity kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, wasted time, yeah, journey times, all that. So so there's huge economic benefit, and particularly in the bus system, because the cost of the infrastructure is quite low. It's really a roads project. It's really about re, you know, relining your streets, basically. It's not, right. it's not huge more investment compared to a light rail or heavy rail system. So you can, you can provide a lot by just with relatively small, low levels of investment. And similarly on the cycling side, and I think we've, what we've seen now and what COVID has, has kind of forced us to do is to think again about how we deliver even our cycling infrastructure. Whereas before it tended to be quite a big project because you wanted to do them off-road and, and protect them. And now we've, we've de- developed just a curb that's actually built along the side of the road, provides that protection. So it's just cyclists are still at the same level as the, the road, but you've got a protective curb that gives that sense of, of security. So you, in times of crisis, you always tend to find that you come up with a bit more creative uh, solutions when you want to deliver them quite quickly. So, Well, it sounds like you guys are on the path to do that, Anne. I hope so. I hope so. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor to have you. And I, as I mentioned, I'm not I, I'm not seeing the kind of federal leadership that you all are having there in your country, in a lot of countries. So I hope that people around the world, we're heard in 99 countries, I hope they all listen to this as a great model <laughs> for them to consider. Great. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.